Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. We are joined today by Eric Berkowitz. Eric Berkowitz has written Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West from the Ancients to Fake News. Eric is a San Francisco-based writer, lawyer, and journalist. Before devoting his practice to public interest in asylum law, he practiced intellectual property and civil litigation in Los Angeles, California. Eric has published widely throughout his career, and his writings have appeared in periodicals such as the New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist, the LA Times, and LA Weekly. He has two previous books entitled Sex and Punishment and The Boundaries of Desire. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. So why did you write this book on the history of censorship? You know, the book really came from the, from the mind of my British publisher. Uh, And, you know, there's no, it's not really a, a terribly grand story. It's sort of, but it, but it hits on grand themes. There, there was this brouhaha going on in London over something called drill music, which I'd never heard of, which is a, very, very rough-edged urban rap rap music. And the London police had actually influenced YouTube to take a bunch of drill music videos off of YouTube because uh, they were concerned that it would get um, people in the tougher neighborhoods of London riled up and maybe committing crimes. And it struck my publisher and myself, one, we thought that was terrible. And it struck my publisher and myself, you know, that the same themes of, you know, fears of the underclass, you know, um, authorities canceling out speech because they didn't understand it, et cetera, began to, you know, know, persisted over time. And, And I began to look around and she began to look around and we realized that the same themes, very often, this was a class based theme, there are many others, arise over time. And while there's an enormous amount written about censorship on the on the ac- academic side and also on the popular side, on the academic side, very dense stuff, very legalistic, and, uh, and on the popular side, often very polemical, there really wasn't, I was astounded at this, there really wasn't a book dealing with the broader themes of censorship over time addressed to the non-academic audience. And uh, because there are so many amazing stories that come out of that, we thought it would be uh, it would fill what we saw as a very glaring niche in the market. Well, I can definitely support you in regard to this because I had been looking around myself for a history of free speech and not just law, but in terms of the concept and how it's been treated over time. And I must say, I agree with you. It's unfortunate and surprising that there's nothing for a general readership uh, and even the academic um, uh, writings of publications on this are very um, uh, siloed. They deal with particular countries or, um, or Supreme uh, particular context. So this is, as you say in the title, it's a brief history, uh, but it's also a history that ranges all the way back to the beginning of recorded history. So it's not just uh, contemporary issues regarding free speech it is all the way back to the ancient Greeks and even before them. So what is the earliest example of censorship that you think is important for us to understand? 
You know, I'm I I I really I can, I'm going to get there. I'm going to point to one particular event, but I think one of the points that we try and make is that censorship is pretty much hard baked into us. That 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 censorship exists, you know, in the minds of the individuals as well as by states in the classic sense. That 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 words and images and expression itself has you know have power. And they affect us, and it's an extremely. It, it takes a very, very realized person to tolerate speech that jars his or her ideas, uh, his or her beliefs, in a way that calls them into question. So there, there is, you know, from the beginning, an impulse to silence. Um, let's call it transgressive speech. You know, very, very quickly. Because of this recognition of the power of speech, I think perhaps an over-recognition of it, um, states, when they have the influence, or religious authorities, when they have the influence, uh, start to exercise their muscle. The first example that I have in the book is from the 3rd century BC in China, when uh, the first Chinese emperor, and I'm going to butcher the the pronunciation of his name, Xin Shi Huang, um, who was the first person to really unify the seven warring states in China. We're now in the year, you know, 2013 odd, odd BCE. And um, he, he was a powerful general but, uh, and a very effective emperor, but very much loathed. And it killed him to hear scholars and others bemoan his leadership, compare it to the great ages of the past. So what he did was pretty efficacious. He um, gathered... Uh, forcefully, all books of literature, philosophy, poetry, etc., uh, took them under his own position, uh, kept copies for himself, destroyed the rest, killed about 400 Confucian scholars. And uh, from that point forward, uh, to, to invoke history or to invoke particularly Confucius in a comparison to him or to even celebrate the great ages of the past, would result in one's death and the death of one's family. Uh, <laughs> that that decree lasted about three years because that's as long as he lasted. Um, he was plagued by extreme par- paranoia, ended up spending the rest of his days in tunnels with a sword on his lap and died uh, three years after this decree, trying, uh, having drank what he thought was an elixir of everlasting life. But, you know, the notion of blasphemous words or of images having their own agency and causing societal destruction uh, was certainly invoked by the Hebrews, and it's hard baked into the Ten Commandments, and it's been evoked uh, very, very heavily, uh, even in the sort of the, let's put it, the center, the, the most beautiful example of free speech in the ancient world, which is ancient Athens. Free speech quickly gave way to uh, paranoia when the fortunes of Athens uh, went south in war. And that's another point you make is that during wartime, in particular, censorship is seen as really a tool for preserving the state and its war effort. Oh, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it, well, in Greece, it was a way to appease the gods because there was a sense, you know, immediately after Athens got into uh, the Peloponnesian War with Sparta, 
uh, its fortunes turned very, very badly. And this plague began to hit Athens. People were dying in the streets. They had immediately lo- immediate losses. And the Athenians thought that something had, you know, uh, infuriated the gods. And they began to look to philosophers as uh, scapegoats, effectively, for, you know, uh, irreligious speech that had offended the gods. So there was that notion of, of quelling speech to change the generalized fortunes of people at, at war, but more mo- in a more modern sense, you know, when there, when society is put under stress or when stress is seen, that is when even our most dearly held ideals uh, get thrown out the window. And we can carry that all the way through to the present day. And so you refer to these dearly held ideals. It seems to me, though, that in the ancient world, there really is no dearly held ideal regarding or respecting freedom of thought, freedom of expression. In fact, the norm seems to be one of what we today would call repression, but what I assume by many leaders and perhaps even those who are ruled by them would see as simply stability, safeguarding the government, uh, preventing chaos, preventing societal destruction or challenges that might weaken the government. Is that right? Yes. Uh, You know, the notion of freedom of speech as a concept or as something that one believes in is, uh, in the long term, of really recent vintage. I mean, yes, Pericles in Athens celebrated the open exchange of ideas in Athens, and they spared no effort patting themselves on the back for that. But that was only a function of one's position in society. Uh, you know, something like 20 odd, odd percent of the Athenian po- population were citizens, and uh, they were the ones that were given the uh, rights. The rest, women, poor, foreigners, etc., non-slaves, had none of those, those rights. But to get to the answer your question, there was really no hair pulling over whether, you know, one's innate rights were... Uh, violated by censorship measures. It it was simply part of the toolkit of religious authorities and governments. And uh, no one particularly questioned whether or not that should be the case. One simply wanted to be on the right side of the equation when it happened. Uh, The the development of free speech as a natural right or as as a right that that we are that we're born with and that the government has no uh, ability to impinge on is extremely recent. I mean, censorship itself as a state function really only came into to, to, uh, existence with the development of the printing press in the, in the late 15th century. Uh, that's when, you know, when print and written expression began to be diffused on a mass scale, the likes of which no one ha- had, had ever seen. That's when the index of forbidden books by the Catholic Church and dozens and dozens and dozens of laws restricting channeling speech came into um, came into existence. But no one really questioned the authorities' right to do so. And of course, there could be different motives. On the one hand, uh, it may simply be the preservation of secular power. 
um, preserving the state or preserving one's rule. But on the other hand, it seems to be that there is a principle, uh, maybe of course dearly held principle, but not so much in terms of freedom of speech, but rather in terms of uh, concern with blasphemous behavior and it's much more theologically oriented. So the cynical uh, version would be the secular state preservation, whereas the more principled understanding of why censorship is needed is in order to preserve the integrity of the faithful, right? Uh, I mean, th- this gets to what we were saying at, at the very beginning of this recording, that, that, that let's call it transgressive speech there is this notion that when 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 one holds a belief, the the very existence of an of, of an opposing belief, even if it doesn't really cause a tangible threat to the authority and power or the religious organization of power, can't exist. So you know, yes, blasphemy was early on framed as something that would uh, cause divine retribution and infect society and you know hurt society itself, but. One, you know, there really has no, no evidence of that. It's simply our inability to tolerate the existence of ideas, and there, and and so censorship can be an, an affirmation of faith that I'm going to de- destroy uh, opposing I- ideas as an example of my embracing of a certain other set of I- ideas. But if you mention blasphemy, blasphemy was has also been used. In a highly political sense, uh, most notably in the 19th century, when the British government brought hundreds of blasphemy prosecutions against people who were effectively political dissenters. And so blasphemy became a political crime. That is, people who were publishing, say, for example, the works of Thomas Paine or other works or even uh, religious parodies, were put on trial, you know, effectively for their lives for blasphemy. And the theory of the British government, and this is astounding to me, is that the gospel was really there to keep the poor and the working poor effectively docile, that they would accept their lot in life, the misery, the the work, the short lifespan, etc., uh, you know that they'll a- 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 accept it in the hope that they would have a better lot in the afterlife, and the British government wasn't really hiding this. So when they sued and brought criminal prosecutions against those who published, for example, the book *Age of Reason* by Thomas Paine, which was a broadside against Christianity. Um, it was specifically to keep it away from the poor. When these books were published in an expensive edition or were channeled away from general readers, they weren't really prosecuted. But when they were made available cheaply and when they were made available to the poor, that's when the prosecutions kicked in. And uh, so, you know, the, the place of God and the place of religion is is very much interwoven not only with spiritual beliefs but with the preservation of temporal power. And so let's fast forward a bit to the sure. advent of the printing press in the mid 15th century and you note that um, obviously it's well known that this in, uh, increases the availability of all kinds of different books not just religious books. 
and also suddenly the government has more to worry about? Well, I mean, the <laughs> it's not just the government. Uh, you know, the printing press really, really supercharged the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, primarily through the works of Martin Luther, which were, of course, instantly forbidden uh, where pretty much wherever he lived. And uh, that created a state of general warfare and destruction in Europe, you know, unseen until World War One and, and, and World War Two. So the control of printed matter became a matter of desperation for both Catholic governments and Protestant governments, and and they simply couldn't keep up. I mean, you know, they uh, instantly with the press, one became a mass teaching on uh, literacy uh, to classes that had never before either you know touched a book, uh, and two became what we can just think of it as the formation of the internet. I mean, before the printing press. Ideas traveled much, much, much more slowly, and debates happened much more slowly. Effectively, the press created what we could think of as like message boards or news groups that, you know, the debate happened much more quickly. And with it became an instant black market. And so not, not only what were forbidden books a threat to government, but they, by virtue of that, became very, very profitable. Authors were told to write anything that would be forbidden, uh, because being forbidden brought a higher price, and actually, you know, the forbidden fruit aspect—if something is forbidden, it's got to be worth worth reading, etc. And so, uh, the, with the diffusion of knowledge and with the supercharging of debates, both religious and political, uh, and the existence of a, a black market that governments couldn't con- control, power almost—it sort of became a snowball. Power almost demanded increased and increased. In increasingly desperate and increasingly futile censorship measures. And that's another theme that is present throughout the book is that mm-hmm. you have the concern on the one part for rulers and the church, but on the other hand, it seems that their efforts uh, ultimately in many cases are ineffectual. Yeah. I mean, censorship in the end doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's going going back to the first chi- to the first Chinese emperor. I mean, what he effectively did was preserve books and a lot of Confucian knowledge, which was forbidden. He kept it uh, remained and forever. The book has examples of, you know, of copies surviving or or works, you know, even in in Rome, there's shades of Fahrenheit 451, people would memorize works that were forbidden. Ideas, and this is why the book is called Dangerous Ideas rather than Dangerous Pages. Ideas don't go away. And very, very often when they are forbidden, when they are you know, pronounced um, illegal, effectively, they, they go on uh, and move ever more faster as a result of that, I mean, the Brits themselves, and there's a, you know, there's a pretty fair concentration on British, uh, on the British story because the book emerged from Britain. So it's really mostly the West, America, Britain, uh, and France, I guess, comes in third on the, on the hit parade of, you know, censorship <laughs> uh, locations. But, you know, their definition of treason 
starting in the 14th century and continuing on to the 18th and 19th century was to compass or imagine the death of the king. That is merely holding an idea itself was treasonous. Now that went back and forth and the book tells what I think is a pretty fascinating story of how ideas were manifested and how, you know, Britain itself wrestled with, you know, thought crimes. Uh, But the idea of censorship actually fully eradicating an idea uh, more often than not, it doesn't work. That's not to gainsay the bitter fate of those who are censored, either by being killed or being jailed or, or you know, any one of the other brutal methods involved. Not to say that there, you know, that there hasn't been suffering or there hasn't been a tremendous amount of uh, dislocations caused by censorship, but effectively, it doesn't work. And I think governments themselves recognize that. I mean, China, to just talk about something in the modern uh, context has the most astoundingly effective internet censorship. It's called the great firewall. Uh, then you could imagine, uh, but still news stories that are forbidden uh, filter through most, most recently through the online game Minecraft, you know, the reporters without borders uh, group managed to import into China hundreds of forbidden news stories by embedding it in an online game. And the Chinese government knows this, but even that only, you know, the, the ineffectiveness of censorship never seems to have stopped governments from trying. So uh, in, in line with that, um, I mm-hmm. definitely appreciate what you say about the inability of government to eradicate ideas that they fear through censorship. But at the same time, it seems to me that arguably governments do get something out of this that are willing um, to repress their people. They're willing to put people to death, imprison them. And so censorship does still hold some value for them because it's not just the people that are ultimately punished or uh, the, uh, the rather small, probably minority that are captured and identified as violating the law, but also the fear that's inspired by their, uh, by their example of their punishment and the deterrence that is instilled. And so in some senses, censorship in, it may be a blunt instrument and it may not be able to eradicate ideas, but at the same time, it certainly can quash uh, resistance. It can quell the population. Uh, In that sense, don't you think it's effective? It's what I call in the book, a spectacle of power. Uh, That, 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 that censorship has been used even though I think the censorship authorities know that the ideas themselves <clears throat> you know, stay, uh, it is a spectacle that we can control the discourse, at least publicly. And I trace that throughout power. Yes, uh, Ian, I think what you said is, is absolutely correct. I mean, when the Romans first began to censor astrological texts or other texts that, that they found to be troublesome or threatening, they would do it in the forum. They would do it as a religious ceremony. They would do it so everyone could see. I mean, censorship itself, when done privately or discreetly, it, it misses the point. The whole point is to let the world know that you're censoring. Uh, of course, yes, it's true. People like Napoleon sense, you know, uh, censored the very idea of censorship 
the Soviet Union guaranteed free speech in its constitution, but everybody knew and it made, and there was sort of a subtext that was, you know, hidden in plain sight that censorship uh, is happening. And there's that sort of interrerum. There's that, that there's the terrorizing effect. I've got to say though, the spectacle of power, the public book burning, the, 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 the hanging or the pillorying of the speaker uh, that can backfire. I mean, in France, in the 19th century, they stopped doing a lot of public book burnings because doing so only juiced sales. Uh, they they would start to they 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 would never they would they stop doing the public announcement of here's this or that book that were that were burning because it only increased the the number of books in circulation. And so it's always dicey, but to get, you know, there there is no question that the public taking down of a writer uh, or a work or a piece of work um, is a spectacle of power that remains in the toolkit of governments throughout the world. I mean, look at what Trump is doing constantly uh, by re- by revoking the press credentials of journalists that you know gave him trouble etc he knew he was going to lose but he said you know i can do this i can move you around i have the ability to to retaliate against you and and that that itself is a spectacle of power that um i don't think governments anywhere want to give up so in, in terms of uh, the contemporary situation in the world we face today, um, we just recently had, uh, thinking about your earliest example from ancient China, uh, mm-hmm. to return to modern China, um, there's the tennis star whose name I cannot fully pronounce accurately. I've heard it pronounced different ways, Peng Shua, um, but I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation. But nevertheless, the Chinese tennis star, who only as we're recording this on November 22nd, 2021, has only recently reappeared uh, in the public. Uh, it seems that uh, these methods and the uh, methods of repression are not going anywhere anytime soon. No, they're not. Uh, and it's not just by the obvious players like China or, you know, Belarus, et cetera. I think, you know, it's spreading. And this is one of the things that I was talking about a little bit earlier is the very existence of, of jarring ideas itself uh, you know, we can talk about cancel culture when, when, when you know, professors or speakers or journalists are taken down uh, basically through mob action uh, on the Internet for ideas, you know, that they have expressed in other contexts. Uh, there's the recent example of the, of the climate scientist who's, who was deplatformed at MIT, not for anything he was saying wrong about climate science, but about something he had said earlier about affirmative action in, um, admissions, uh, that, that, that the very existence of a person expressing those ideas. And I, I don't have an opinion on what the person expressed, um, is impossible to tolerate. I think we used to, at least we, well, we've lived in a very, very unique period in you and I, and the, our listeners where, where speech has never been more permitted where dissent has never been more tolerated and where actually the, 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 the hurt feelings, et cetera, that come from open speech have, have never been more ignored by the government. And 
I think that is changing. I think we're returning to a much more censorious view. The Brits are now uh, about to pass a comprehensive internet law in which the platforms, that is Facebook, etc., are going to be held liable for gargantuan fines in the, and worse for allowing speech that might cause anyone any predictable adverse psychological harm. Uh, that is, you know, basically governments offloading censorship onto private actors, uh, but, you know, <laughs> enforcing it with, you know, real penalties. But effectively, we're coming into a belief where hurt feelings, uh, exclusion, etc., that comes from speech is to be uh, suppressed. And, and, you know, however you feel about that, uh, as to whether hate speech and whether offensive speech or sexist speech, etc., you know, should or should not exist, this notion, this brief moment where we have, as a Western society, have, ex- have accepted the idea that to tolerate what, what, what Holmes, what Justice Holmes called thoughts we hate, is not the same as to approve of them. That is, that we can coexist with obnoxious ideas and resist the urge to get rid of them because that obnoxious idea today might actually be tomorrow's truth that we will act on. Uh, that notion that we've embraced is, is dissipating. And, and, and so censorship isn't only coming from you know, uh, the Banana Republic General or, or Russia, uh, we're now embracing it. And those of us, at least from the center left, who have always seen the government kind of on the, on the opposite side of censorship, are now looking to governments to impose it, protect us, you know, give us a safe space, stop this obnoxious actor from 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 saying something horrible, yeah, stop the neo Nazis from expressing terrible things, or, or the anti Semites, or or whomever. Uh, I think we're in a period now where we really need to do some hard reflection into ourselves personally, and reflect on on what the price of tolerance is, and what the price of intolerance is. The book is entitled Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West from the Ancients to Fake News. And we've been joined today by its author, Eric Berkowitz. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. This was great. I really appreciate it.